I um, thought I was going to have the opportunity last Sunday to view online the service. Uh, I ended up in a committee meeting uh, that I didn't expect to. I was in Chicago for executive board meetings for a denomination and I'm just so encouraged by the leadership that God has given to our denomination and the challenges that are part of it along the way and feel like I am so glad that I get to be a part of a group of people that just try to act as brothers and sisters in Christ and wrestle through things together and, and launch forward with things. So I enjoyed that time there, but I came back and I heard about the incredible services that you had last Sunday, Bible Sunday for the first graders. I love being a part of that, and I miss that, sending off a team to Nepal to work with leaders in Kathmandu and help them equip uh, others to care for kids traumatized by the earthquake there. And then to hear Maggie's testimony. I uh, have heard it before, but it was just fun to hear the way that God, uh, God used that among us too. So if you missed last Sunday, you'll just have to go online and at least see a portion of what happened last week. It really is our goal every Sunday when we get together to, uh, to have a time to celebrate what God is doing, to be equipped to be able to live the life God has for us, and to just revel in God's grace and love to us in so many ways. And we approach God's word with the anticipation that he will show us his grace and his love as he speaks his truth to us. So let's pray as we spend some time together. God, we thank you for the richness of words written uh, some 2,000 years ago that are still characterized by life and power because they're your spoken words. And God, we pray now that um, your words would speak into our lives in ways that would cause us to know you better, to know ourselves better, and to know the task in front of us more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So it was yesterday morning, and I was on hold. I was on hold for 17 minutes. And over and over again, for this organization that I had called, they told me that my call was very important to them. <laughs> and 17 late, minutes later, it just disappeared. I said to the phone, hello, hello. I tried to push buttons. I had been waiting 17 minutes. This was an investment. And uh, I had been told that my call was really important to them. And then they were just gone. And so I uh, called another hour later, and I was on hold for 26 minutes. Yes, yes, I counted. <laughs> and I was told again that my call, not wasn't important, it was very important. Your call is very important to, to us, they said. And at the 26, maybe 27-minute mark, finally I got a live person on the line. What do you think I said to them? <laughs> what were the words that came out of my mouth? Let's just turn that question a little bit. What would you have said? What words would have come out of your mouth? And what are the things that trigger that impulse inside of you to say that thing that just sounds so clever and cutting and harsh or whatever it might be? What, what are the circumstances in your life that lead you to be so tempted to say that thing? You know, for me, you know, when I measure something and it just seems like there's incompetency on the other end of it, oh, I get, I get so close. Or, or less than authentic. Did you really mean my call is so important to you? 
I mean, there's so many opportunities for a clever response, right? What, what are the times in your life when you are that close to those words? Or perhaps you just go right over the line and they actually do come out of your mouth. When are those moments? Let me ask one more question before we get into the text. Who in the world ever said, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never harm me? You know, I did a brief search of this, and it doesn't look like anybody claims it. <laughs> because it is, it is so far from the truth, isn't it? I mean, we try to tell our kids that, right? I mean, we, it, it just sounds like such a clever thing to be able to say, but guess what? Words can be devastating. And so we're walking through the letter that James wrote to God's people, and he's telling us that our faith should be accompanied by deeds. Just right before that, read the verses just before this in chapter 2, and he just talks about this, that faith has got to be accompanied by deeds. It doesn't mean that faith is earned by deeds. It's easy to twist it just a little bit, isn't it, and say that faith is earned by the things I do. Nor does it say faith requires deeds, that faith brings with it an obligation to do. It says that faith is accompanied by deeds. And so we're looking at a faith that is robust, a faith that actually has implications, that actions spill out of it into our life. That's the kind of faith we're looking at. It is so big that it generates deeds. Deeds then make a person's faith visible. Now, now, deeds can be motivated by other things. They can be motivated by fear. That's not the kind of faith that Christ talked about. Deeds can be motivated by obligation. That's not the kind of faith that Christ talked about. Deeds can be motivated by guilt. That's not the kind of faith Jesus talked about. But because deeds can be motivated by those things, by fear or obligation or guilt, we don't throw out the value of deeds. We don't disregard them because of the possible source that's inferior to the source that God has provided for us, his people. We focus instead on the source that produces those deeds in a life-giving way, in a God-reflecting way. Those kinds of deeds come from this kind of faith. And, and that's what we live by. We live by faith in Jesus Christ that transforms our lives in such a way that relevant things spill out of the way we live, even the way we talk. Our faith actually spills out into our life through our words. So as we, looked at this as we look at this text this morning, I want to highlight just three issues that James brings up. First of all, he brings up the tongue, then he brings up the devil, and then he brings up the cure. He brings up the tongue, and then he brings up the devil, and then he brings up the cure. Let's look first at what he says about the tongue. And this can be titled in one quick sentence, never underestimate the power of the tongue. Never underestimate the power of the tongue. And he goes to this catalog of reminders here. One, teachers will be graded strictly because they use their tongue. Simply because they say words, they will be graded more strictly because words have power. 
There's a little bit of what James is talking about here with the teachers that were part of the churches that James is writing to here. Teachers that were using words, that were saying things, that brought assurances that would actually devastate and undermine community. We'll get to that a little more in a little bit. But there's another reference here, and it is to godliness that applies to the whole body. The whole body, even the small parts of the body. So my longing for God to make me godly applies not just to the big stuff in my life, but the little parts of my life as well. Godliness applies to the whole. Consecration applies to the whole. It's the whole deal. And every single part of my life matters if my life will be uh, uh, an expression of godliness. Then he goes on to talk about tiny bits that actually turn horses, powerful horses horses, small rudders that steer ships, even in the most hostile of winds, and small sparks that set forests on fire. He's letting us know that we must never underestimate the power of the tongue because the tongue is like those things. It can ruin communities. Not necessarily even malicious speech or hateful speech, just mistaken or misguided speech here. We have reference to this earlier on in James chapter 2 and we looked at that. Speech should actually misguide people into thinking that it's possible to live a life of favoritism. And when you speak that way, quarrels and strife break out. And we'll see that in the very next section of God's Word here. But there's this permission that can be given by teachers to, to show favoritism or to, to hold a grudge. The nature of Christian community is to forgive and to embrace. And so what happens in when I say to a friend of mine... Uh, you have a right to be angry. You have a right to, to, to feel the way you do about it. And it's possible for me to actually give permission to a fellow brother or sister in Christ to engage in a behavior that's actually destructive rather than the hope that's found in the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the capacity to forgive. So my words should be, rather than you have a right to feel that way, they should be, you know what, God's grace is so powerful and I will pray that God will give you the capacity to forgive. You see, the one is so easy to say because it makes us feel so close. You, 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 I can completely understand. There's a difference between that kind of empathy and the kind of truth that God wants us to speak one to another. And the, the, those teachers of the day were not only saying, you have a right to play favorites, they were also saying, you, 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 you go ahead and, and invest in things that don't last forever. We talked about this several weeks ago. It can ruin communities when we say things that are not accurate declarations of what God calls us to. And that's what was happening in the community that James is talking to. But there's another part of it, too. It can ruin my life. Words can actually ruin my life. The things that I say or the things that are said to me actually have that kind of power. James says it can set the whole course of our life on fire. Now, in that, um, uh, in that time, fire was one of the most feared disasters there would be. There could be a lot of other things that would happen, but fire was this horrific things be, thing because there are few opportunities in the ancient world to quench a fire. There just weren't those resources that are available like they are today. This was one of the most alarming things that could happen to have something set on fire because it goes and it goes and goes. And so he says that's what the tongue can do. Words don't draw blood and they don't break bones. 
Words are worse than that. They change the course of a person's life. The bit in a mouth changes the direction of the horse's path. The rudder on the boat changes the direction of the ship's course. Do you see? They are direction changing. They have that much power. A father with little education, and I saw this once, ridiculed his son for studying so hard. That has power in the life of an impressionable seven-year-old boy who thinks his father matters so much. A student bullies classmate because it just seems funny to them. And we heard recently when we were hearing about human trafficking, the devastating impact of mere words on a course of a person's life and their sense of definition of who they are and whether they matter and longing to find somebody who will say one good thing about them because they're not hearing it from anybody else. It changes the course of a person's life. A parent screams out words, oh, we wish we could take them back, don't we? Because there's a power in them. Because we remember when words like that were spoken to us when we were at that impressionable age. A colleague at work is the brunt of jokes, brunt of being put down, and and then is somehow categorized because of those put-downs that accumulate and pile up, and, and it changes the course of the trajectory of their career because they become that person and are overlooked by, because people spoke those words. We don't even know when it happens to us sometimes. Stories are told behind backs and we wonder where our friends went. Words, they were words. They were stories, they were words. And now, what's happened to my life? Where did all of my friends go? You're ugly. You will never amount to anything. You should be ashamed of yourself. You know, those words pop out, and some of them are never forgotten. You know, my daughter said to me recently that she was going to get a tattoo, and I saw the picture of it, and I had some alarm, you know. I did. And you know what I said to her? Be careful. That tattoo, it lasts forever. You know what lasts what goes deeper than a tattoo? Words. Words can tattoo a life. And they last longer, go deeper. We can actually tattoo people with words. Words are not just words and tongues are not inconsequential. There is power in it. And even those of us that feel powerless we really know that we have access to power. We can say things. We can say things. There is a direction. The tongue steers a life. Like, it, like a bit steers a horse and a rudder steers a ship. And it's devastating. And one of the reasons why it's devastating is because it seems so almost inconsequential, perhaps even innocent. They're just words. Um... But I think it's devastating also because 
the impact is not immediately obvious. A bone is broken, and it's pretty clear to see that. A spirit is broken, you just don't see that as much. It can destroy and not be seen until much later. So don't disregard. Don't disregard and underestimate the power of the tongue. Then James goes on and he says, but I want to tell you something about that concern is, is that Satan lives in that place. This is, this is a tool that Satan uses to destroy. Don't disregard the purposes of Satan. His purposes are poisonous. This caution regarding the tongue is an extension of the two paths thing, the path of life and the path of death. But there's critical detail now as far as what moves us towards the path of death. And it's the agenda of the evil one. Satan is involved here. In verse 6 it speaks of the world of evil, of a life that is set on fire by hell. And the word here actually was a, a living symbol for those that lived in Jerusalem at least. Hell, the word hell here is Gehenna, and there was a valley called Gehenna just outside of Jerusalem, on the south side of Jerusalem, of the old city. And it was this valley, it was this place that was filled with garbage and things that were discarded in refuge. Even bodies of people whom no one claimed or wanted to disappear were in this valley. And it just burned and smoked and there was an overwhelming stench that came from the place. It was, it was always on fire. And, 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 and James uses this as a reference point. In fact, it was used as a reference point in, um, in um, uh, early uh, Christian un and Jewish understanding as the symbol of evil, the place of evil, what the place of evil looked like. You see that valley south of Jerusalem? What Satan intends is just like that. To devastate, to ruin, to break lives, to set them on fire, to create a stench in a person's life that never goes out. Satan is the ultimate source of corrosive speech. Elsewhere, James talks about the evil impulse. Here he just lays it right out. It is the evil one, and his heart is intent on, on taking the course of our life down. Verse 8, it refers to a deadly poison. Poison is the thing that works because it's not seen. That's what poison is, right? It fools you. You don't realize what it is you're taking in until after it impacts you. And that's what he said Satan does, is he just invites us on this little journey towards something, towards the declaration of words that come out, and they just don't seem like they've hurt anything until later on we realize that they were deadly and they were poisonous. You know, it's the, it's the logic that comes to mind for us and says, it feels so good to, I'm, I'm just speaking my mind. That's all it is. I'm just speaking my mind. Or I'd say something directly to them if I thought it would actually help, but it won't, so let me tell you about it. Or, you know what? They had it coming. These are all poisonous justifications. They're poisonous justifications. And Satan's intentions here are laid out to destroy us and to mock God. He wants to destroy our life because it's a means of him mocking God. So God, those are the ones whose heart you occupy. 
That's what it looks like for someone to follow you. Your children, look at your children, God. They bless you and they curse you both at the same time. How can this be? And so Satan, Satan is absolutely involved in what happens in my heart and what it does to the world around me. And we ask the question, what then is the cure? How do I, how do I rid myself of, of these words that come out and destroy my life? As Christians, we ask the question, God, how will you help me with this? Well, the first thing we need to know, and James makes it perfectly clear, is moralism won't help. Just trying to be a better person is not the way to do it. I'm going to just be better with my tongue. I'm going to wash my tongue out with soap. That's what my folks did to me. It worked. For a little bit. But you know, those words, they just spill out so easily. How can I stop that? And James says this. This is one thing we know. We can't tame it. In verse 7, that's what he talks about here. He says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Roman civilization was proud of its ability to tame nature. Look what we can do. Look what the high human mind can do, what the rational spirit can accomplish. It believed that reason governed both nature and human convention. And to harness nature is evidence of the power of the rational spirit in the universe. And so to control and to tame animals, along with all of the other things that they sought to control, was just a demonstration of, look what we can do. And, and, and so James is speaking into that and saying, you know, you think by the power of your own human spirit, by a rational mind, by the right thinking, by the correct discipline you can contain, contain the tongue, tongue, guess what? This surpasses that. As much as you think rationality or discipline will do it, it cannot accomplish it. He says the tongue is a restless evil. The word also is disorderly. In other words, it stands in contrast to what can be ordered and what can be reasoned out. The tongue isn't, it, it, you cannot order the tongue. No one can tame the tongue. So self-restraint, as valuable as it is in our life, its value is limited because the problem still surfaces. And the problem is described in verse 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in the likeness of God. I had a friend of mine one time who uh, was looking at a work of art on a wall. And as he stood there, he just began to criticize, criticize what he saw on the wall. <clears throat> he didn't know that the person who had painted it was right there next to him. You know, how embarrassing is that? Oh, I wasn't criticizing you, just what you make. Well, that wasn't what happened. This, this, this embarrassment just overflowed them. You see, because there, there's a connection there, isn't there, between the person and what they make. And so James is saying to us, how is it possible for us to give praise to the Father and criticize what he makes? By the way, does that fill us with embarrassment? Is there a sense of rebuke in that for us? To be able to say how good God is 
and to criticize the people that God has made. Do you see how incongruent that is? What is the cure? The cure to that incongruence is getting to the source of where it came from. And that's where James goes. Fresh water and salt water don't come from the same springs. Blessing and cursing, they can't be found in the same source. There is either a source that produces figs on a tree and grapes on a vine because of what that tree is, what the nature of it. The nature of the tree determines the nature of the fruit. What is the nature of your soul? So if I am ever going to have success with my tongue, I have to change the place where those words came from. We get to the heart of it. No one human being can tame the tongue. Well, then what hope do I have? The hope you have is to surrender your life to the God who loves you and provides every good gift. That's where James started this whole conversation. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. He is the Father of heavenly lights from whom every good and perfect gift comes. Our only hope is this. It is to surrender our heart to the one who loves us and who made us. The only way to tame the tongue is to surrender the heart. The only way to tame the tongue is to surrender the heart. Let me give you an example of this. Many of you know the story of our family. My my brother, when he was 27 years old, was shot, paralyzed, and we were in um, uh, a, a critical care unit in Minneapolis. And we weren't sure whether Mike would ever, would, would, whether he would live. Um, then a couple days into it, it looked like he would live. We weren't sure if he would ever think correctly again. And God gave him that. But God never gave him anything more than the ability to move his neck. Uh, and that was it. And we were in the midst of crisis, and my mom is seeing her youngest child, uh, life just, and, and his dreams and his hopes, and the marriage he thought he was moving towards just gone just like that. And um, my mom turned to the family, and she said to us, she says, here's what I've decided. I have seen so many people live with tragedy, and be characterized by bitterness because of it for the rest of their life that I will not go down that path. I will not allow this to make me a bitter woman. I've seen too much of that. I will not allow this to make me a bitter woman. You see, the path set before us. One can lead to life and to godliness and to grace and to peace. And the other can be rationalized oh so easily and it can lead to bitterness and harshness and devastation. What will we choose? What will we choose? The only person my mom could go to was the one who loves us and to decide to surrender to him. There are two pieces of this, I think. It is, not, it is not mere resolve to surrender. It's more than that. There are two things God equips us with, and the first is this, to have heads that are filled with understanding of what Satan intends to do. I know what's going on. 
I know why I have a, such a hard time with my tongue and with my words. Satan wants to destroy my life and the people around me. Heads filled with understanding. I know exactly what's going on here. This isn't innocent and it's not hopeless. There is an evil one set on destroying me and the people around me. I understand completely what is going on here. Satan is engaged in my life because he wants to do me harm and take glory from God. Heads filled with understanding. But the other part of it is this. To have hearts that are filled with worship. To have hearts that are filled with worship. From the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what Jesus said. It says it in Proverbs as well. From the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is my heart full of? What will my heart be full of? Because from the fullness of the heart, my mouth speaks. And James says to us, fill it with worship. Love the Lord your God. This is the one from whom every good thing comes, to be filled with worship. There are two paths, the path of death and the path of life. What will I fill my heart with determines the direction of my life. Worship, to focus on the bedrock truths of God that give me a will to worship Him. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. That's what my mom decided to say every single day. I heard her say it. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. It is what is inside that naturally flows outside. So here's the cure. The practice of worship. The practice of worship. Worship drains away need for anything else. That's what it does. Words are powerful. And God wants us to live by them. I received a letter this week from some, a letter. Can you believe that? Not an email. No, no, it was actually a letter. And it wasn't a thank you note. It was actually just a letter. Dear Mark, it said on the beginning of it. And there it was, words on a page. And the reference was something I had said to this person a week before. And this guy lives out of town. Um, and he said, Mark, what you said to me filled me with hope again. They were just words. I have a note from one of my daughters in my Bible at home, and it's just words on a page. Just, just words. I treasure them because of what was said and how much it means to me. You see, God wants us to use words. Words that come from a heart that is filled with worship. And watch the trajectory of lives when we worship and it spills out into a life filled with those kinds of words. May God lead us toward him that our words might speak of him. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word to us and for the relevance of it for each of us. And I pray, God, that you would now take Take these truths and help us to apply them. Be able to say to you, I know, I know exactly, Lord, what you mean to say to me this morning. And I will worship you 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.